0: To Cooper Talk.
1: Welcome to Cooper Talk, I'm your host Steve Cooper and remember I'm only as hip as my guest and I gotta tell you something people, I'm, I'm not a big reality show TV watcher but I saw people on Facebook talking about this show called 90 Day Fiancé so I had to check it out and I'm gonna tell you it's such a piece of crap but it's so addicting. These people are so dysfunctional. There's like this 46-year-old white trash lady from York, Pennsylvania, who's going to Nigeria to meet a guy who's a rapper. And then there's this guy I feel so bad for, this little guy named Ed. He's he's 52. He's in love with this girl in the Philippines who's 24. She has a 5-year-old. Her and her sister live in a room that doesn't even have, like, a kitchen. And he's all worried he's going to go marry her. And I'm thinking she only wants the money. And his biggest worry is... He told her he was five foot two but he's only four foot eleven so if you want to just watch a train wreck watch that anyway we have a great show today uh, my guest is a musician he is a former actor I got that now and he has a very good IMDB uh, credit listings but for some reason he's not acting anymore and he cooks too and my guest is Robert Melhouse how you doing Robert I'm fine thank you
0: thank you so much for um, having me on the show during the um market crash it's
1: it's terrific oh i know it's so funny you know what, what's funny about this is i feel i have allergies today and because it's warm in new jersey and my throat's a little scratchy and i keep taking my temperature because i know with coronavirus you have a fever but i'm such a moron i'm like i don't have coronavirus i don't you know and even if i had it i mean i do have a little of heart condition i'm not going to die it's just we're getting everyone's getting so caught up in everything these days
0: well, I mean, there's there's some cause for concern. I mean, that's for sure. I mean, what can you possibly say? Just three weeks ago or four weeks ago, I mean, nobody really knew exactly what was going on, and and today is just sort of a, a, a you know, it's it's a, a sort of a panic mode between the virus spreading, which is spreading rapidly in a bizarre way, and no one seems to have any idea how to properly contain it and then you have on top of that what's happening is the oil markets you know between saudi arabia and russia and the plunging and the glut of oil and then you have this combination of that and the virus plus the trade war plus the incompetence of the situation that we're in with the administration and you have this like recipe for a disaster after an 11-year Sort of bull run, even though the economy seems to be, you know, low unemployment and chugging along. It's, you know, the last thing that's holding, you know, the economy together really is the, the consumer. And, the, and if everyone's nesting and sort of in this sort of panic paranoid mode, and some of it correctly so, and other I think is a little too much, then then this is this is the kind of day that you see, you know, an event like this that comes along every ten years. However. But this time it's a little bit different because it's you know a virus isn't really financial you know you can't sort of correct it with some sort of policy um, financial policy by the Fed or or easing or you know this is a, this is an emergency you know and and the sad thing is like yes yes Steve you you know you and I if we did say catch the virus we're, we you know most likely will be fine I mean but I really do worry about like older people compromised people people with you know, respiratory issues and stuff like that. And I think for those people, it's really
1: frightening. Oh, it is frightening. And I'll tell you, for me, as I said, I had a heart thing uh, a while back and I've gotten a few ablations this year. It's not a disease, it's just AFib. But I was supposed to go to Seattle for business. I was supposed to fly out last night. And the problem is where I was going was five miles from where the people died. And I just said, you know what? I'm not going. And I'm usually, I'm someone who doesn't buy into a lot of this stuff, but I was like, that's just stupid if I go and that's the thing anything in life you have to be smart
0: yeah you know I, at some point I guess it's also like about you know sort of like playing your odds you know you know <laughs> you know should I go to that hockey game or should I you know maybe not or you know what I mean it's just sort of the odds of it all but you know my wife is brilliant you know she's an executive um, senior. Supervising producer of NPR's Morning Edition on the West Coast here. So she, you know, she works 14 hours a day at times. And, you know, whether it's what she does on that show, which is, I think, one of the, one of the greatest radio shows on the planet. Um, um, you know, so I've sort of gotten, you know, the information that she has been getting as much as anyone really sort of gets, you know, whether it's your sources are, you know. And it's... Um, you know, there's, there's some there's some good news too. Like you know, the other day there's a there's a hundred year old guy that got coronavirus and he recovered from it. So I mean, it's just um, this is we're, we're living in some dark times. I mean, it, it's just uh, it's it's I've never quite seen anything like it. I mean, living through the we I mean, you know we've been through some crazy times like nine eleven, the financial crisis, and this and that. And here we are again, you know, you never think it's just going to happen again. And all of a sudden within weeks, that's, that's my dog, um, you, you know, we have this sort of bizarre pandemic that Bill Gates has been sort of warning everybody about. You know, he's always been, um, he's kind of been on the forefront of sort of warning people about, you know, the events that we really need to worry about, you know, there's certain things come and go like recessions and you know, economic cycles, and you know, just life in general. Um, but he's, he, you know, him and his wife, David, David's like, we need to prepare for, you know, something like this. And I don't really think we're really prepared for it, you know?
1: Yeah, I don't know. It's something that, um, you know, as I said, I'm chilling out and I'm taking things as in stride and I'm back in New Jersey. So it's good. And you're, you're a Connecticut guy, right?
0: Yeah, I was, I was born in New Haven, Connecticut and, um, spent, you know, I went to, I went to, uh, school. Field Academy, and then I, uh, and my parents got so split up, got divorced, like most parents do in the 70s, and, um, or did, rather, and uh, I sort of, you know, from there, it sort of, like, became sort of, I just went to Colorado College for a bit, and went to Washington, D.C., when my mom was sort of, uh, my mom was living, and I ended up finishing out my school there, and studying music and theater, and. At basically political anything I could I, I just i actually loved school which was was weird I went in the summer I went. I was just i when it ended I was sad you know I started out such a horrible student and then somehow in the end I was just i couldn't get enough of it you know literature poetry everything i just I just loved it and, um so so yeah so I kind of from that whole East coast area and then came out here to Los Angeles in 1990 to um, the show and uh, and then I ended up. I didn't. I wasn't going to stay here, you know. I just sort of was going to do the show, Days of Our Lives, you know, soap operas, and I did that my two and a half, three years, whatever. And then I met. I was um, shopping at Beechwood Canyon for something. I was living up in the, the hills there, a little teeny little house up there, and uh, I met this guy. Turns to me, he goes, "Hey, do you play hockey?" And I was like. I had a hockey shirt on, like a Detroit Redling shirt. And I turn around and it's, it's, you know, it's Keanu Reeves from Bill and Ted. You know, it's 1990. So I was like, as a matter of fact, I do play hockey. He goes, could I play? I'd like to play. I'm a goaltender in it. And that's not exactly how he talks. But um, so we ended up forming this friendship hockey, and then through music, and then I ended up being in a band with them for like 15 years, so now, I ended up staying here, so now, that's kind of how my East Coast ass ended up staying here in Los Angeles, and then once I bought a house, it was over, you know, that I was just sort of stuck here, you know? Now, I had yeah. to ask you,
1: you know, you, you said theater and music, and I know you're a drummer. When you were younger, what was your first love, theater or music? Um...
0: I think it was sort of the same thing happening all at once because, you know, I I, I was lucky because I, my sisters were six years older than me, you know? Uh, six and seven, they, they weren't born at the it yeah, came out at the exact same time. So one was six and seven years older. So, you know, as a kid growing up in the 60s in Brantford, Connecticut, and having older sisters and a mother who's an artist of the sculptures, it was, it was really a good household. You know, my dad was into business and he had his, he this thing but music was a big deal you know so my dad would play these big band records all the time throughout the house and my sisters would play like you know the Beatles and the Stones and and, and everything from that era so so and then on, to top that off on television you know on television you know we, we, we saw the Beatles and then the Monkees came on and that was huge for me because as a kid growing up in the 60s that might have missed the Beatles revolution or was still happening, you know, sort of, but as an American, you know, we turn on the TV and then there was this thing, you know, the monkeys. And, and to me, those, I mean, those songs are brilliant, you know? So, you know, at the time as a kid, you don't really know who's, you know, who was writing them, but it's like Carol King and Neil Diamond and, and just, you know, all these incredible writers. So I, I became obsessed with, with music at that really early age. So I guess, I guess music was first and then I and that's I started playing the piano and that that's sort of my main instrument is, is the piano now. I mean it has been. I mean drums were sort of an accident because when I met Keanu, I didn't want to be in a band with a piano so um, I just decided he had a drum set laying around so I was like, I'm gonna just go pound on those and you know at the time music was very punky and grungy and and, uh, so that, that's sort of, I just sort of sat down and learned the drums with him.
1: You know, that's, that fascinates me because I have a lot of friends who are drummers and, you know, drumming is such a hard thing to learn because people don't know that you know you're using, not only are you using like your foot on a hi-hat and your foot on the bass, but you're using your hands. So it's, it's total coordination and you're using every limb and it's amazing that you picked it up pretty quickly.
0: You know, it took me a while. Like I was doing certain things well, and then I was sort of stuck in a rut. You know, I was—I think I was hitting the drums too hard. You know, I was doing all these things that, you know, like the exuberance of youth, like a young person in their twenties would do. That you know, just sort of, you know, trying to attack the drums, and and then you know, I I started to um, take a step back after I met. This guy Rick Prasher, who did Pearl Jam ten records, who we were lucky enough to do a little EP with, and he really set me on the right course. He said, "Look, just just relax, change your sticks, and you know, just focus on your timing, you know, because it was way off because I was all over the place." So that was helpful. And then when I met Ed Stasium, who was this incredible, is a producer who did a lot of the Ramones records and engineered them as a terrific engineer. He got me really to, to pay pay attention to the vocal and then, which makes so much sense because my favorite drummers growing up was always, you know, Ringo Starr and John Bonham and Charlie Watts and, and, um, you know, a lot of the uh, Motown drummers. Um, So, and Hal Blaine, of course. So, so I was like, oh yeah, I, 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 once I started like hanging my, my beat around the vocal and didn't make it about me you know i was never going to be like Neil Peart or anything like that once i started doing that oh my god it was everything just sort of fell into place i just played around the vocal and then and then everything just slowed down and became i just served the song and i and i and it just as the years went by i could slowly develop you know other techniques without having to learn all at once because i learned to listen and you know?
1: Now, you mentioned you moved to LA for a show, Days of Our Lives. How did your acting career start off?
0: You know, it's funny because as I um, as I went to school and uh, after after you know I graduated with this BFA, so I thought, oh I, no, shit. That's excuse me. That's uh, <laughs> I better do that. So I moved to New York, and I was I thought I was just going to stay in DC and do some theater. So I, but I moved to New York and. I somehow I got involved with this this guy who uh, used to be a casting director for commercials, now in the management company. And I met him through another actor. And all of a sudden, I found myself doing all these commercials. You know, in the in the late '80s, and there's only three channels on television, three or four. You know, so there's there's I, and I found myself just every day. It was it was insane. I'm like, who who are you? And 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 I started booking them. You know, like. In, just an enormous amount of work that in a very short period of time, and and um, so I sort of got stuck in this sort of rut, and I wasn't doing any of my artistic stuff. So, but on the side, I was still working. You know, like actors do. You know, waiting tables and selling clothes and down in Soho, and and I got a got a job at the Playboy Club, and I got to play harmonica in the band, and so I met Andy Warhol and all those people, and and. Uh, and so, so it sort of that's how it happened. So I started to actually make money during doing that. It wasn't really what I wanted to do, but it afforded me to be able to sort of move out here and then just, you know, um, you know, just to live in New York City doing that. And um, but everything, you know, happened when I moved out here. I got to do a lot more, you know, comedy and drama and stuff like that. But then, but also doing the music as well. I guess I s you know, it's hard when you spread yourself really thin. But I suppose, you know, when you look back on things, you really remember the experiences of life, you know, and the the good things, you know, when I think when we're you know, when we're, we're on our deathbed and we're like looking back at our life, you know, we're not gonna remember like, you know, you know oh, you know, the, the serious regular role I had on a show for a year or two. I mean, you're gonna remember the experiences you had with your friends and your loved ones and those things that, you know, are tangible I think. And I think I knew I kind of knew that as it was happening, and part of me was like, "Okay, I'm making the wrong decision, and I know I'm making it." But years later, I'll look back on this, and these are the imprints of memories I'm going to have in my life. And um, so it's, it was one of those double edged swords, and uh, I guess that's kind of been my. Whole the way I've looked at it my whole life. It's
1: well, like a double-edged sword. Well, you know, I just want to get back to days of our lives real quick because I know people have been on soap operas, and their lives completely changed because everybody recognizes them. You were on for how long?
0: I was like two and a half years. I was I played this character for two and a half years, yeah. So
1: were people starting to recognize you now, or were you getting recognized because of the commercials too? I mean, that must be something that no one's really ready for.
0: You know, commercials are silly, you know, back in, back then, you know, the commercials were different, you know, there were mostly actors doing them, not a lot of models, um, and certainly not a lot of celebrities, you know, uh, so it was, you know, and it was a lot of talking, there was, it was funny, you know, you didn't do a lot of commercials where you just sort of waltz in, it was like dialogue, you know, it was really, it was kind of, you know, they were, they were a little more, you know, creative, I mean, um, maybe not creative, but they were just a little more evolved. So it felt okay to do them. It didn't seem like, you know, it was a little weird. So when I got out here, the soap, um, you know, recognize, I, I don't, you know, I don't know. You know, when you live in New York, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think I was ever, the soap for sure. Oh my gosh. I mean, that is just a whole nother thing or it used to be. I mean, I don't know if there's any soaps left. It might be two or three, but yeah, Back in in the early '90s, yeah, it was it was weird going to the grocery store and then people looking in your basket like you're gonna eat that, you're gonna buy that, <laughs> really, Rob? <laughs> it's like, well, it's but, it's, you it's, know,
1: that, it's it's funny yeah, that as I say year. as I say real quick. It's funny as the people who do are the soap fanatics. I had a Tal Panglis on my show years ago, and I, I put that he was going to be on, and like every seventy five year old lady on Twitter was like, when's he going to be on? When's he going on? When's he going to be on? And it's just, it's a different crowd. Because these people who are into, are into soaps are into them. I mean, it's not like, you know, they're like almost like sports fans, how fanatical they are.
0: Yeah, they are fanatical. You know, and back then there was no social media at all. So, you know, there wasn't even, you know, there wasn't no, no cell phones. I mean, back in 1990, 92, 93. So, so it was just fan mail. know that's what we would get like um and uh some of the letters were you know were hilarious but you know I I really enjoyed working there I mean I met one of my best friends Tony Alda on that show um my friend Nick Easton and so there was a really some really decent people there that I really enjoyed so and uh you know from Tony I, I I mean he was a great guy you know another musician great actor and and lifelong friendship with him and his children so I mean, it's a, it was a really really positive experience. and i learned a lot because you could do things on that show and you know you just it was a great it's a great place to start you know because you can do a lot of trial and error stuff and they let me do all that stuff and then so after that when i moved on to do you know more like comedy shows and guest stars and, I just felt really confident going into those sets, you know, having worked five days a week, doing two, 20 to 30 pages a day, you know? So, so I felt, I never understood, you know, like a lot of people, you know, back then in film, people would just shoot like a two pages a day or a page a day. I'm like, I was like, how do you suck shooting a page a day? <laughs> like we had to shoot like 15 pages or 20 pages or, so I, you know, it was, it was really helpful as a, as a workout, you know? But, the, you know, obviously the, the writing is different so it's it's not Shakespeare so you really have to come up with a character then you really can't then I, I think that's the best thing to do because then you don't have to blame the writing oh the writing's terrible you know you don't have to blame the writing if you come up with a really good character so it's because you can just sort of you know because in real life we don't always speak in prose and poetry and we don't always say these amazing great things that come out of our mouth so knowing that you know yeah that really helped me fall back on, you know, to get through that show. I, I felt really comfortable. I, they could have given me any dialogue. I didn't care. I had so much fun playing this character, so it didn't matter to
1: me. Now, as an actor, you know, you were also on Seinfeld. What was your experience on Seinfeld? Because, once again, Seinfeld constantly gets replayed, and what's amazing about Seinfeld is, my friend's sons are, uh, probably high school age, and or ones in college, but he said, even though they watch Seinfeld now, and, There weren't cell phones, so everything would be solved on the side if there was one cell phone. But kids relate to it. And that's a show that keeps playing on and on. What was your experience on it?
0: You know, it was one of the best weeks I've ever had in my entire life. That and the Larry Sanders show um, were two of the best weeks um, I've ever had on a set. First of all, they both were similar in, in one way you felt like you were making a home movie, you know, before the audience showed up. Obviously one of them had an audience. Uh, well, I'll just address the sign one. It felt, um, there wasn't any network around, you know, there wasn't like network run through by that time that I got on. It, it was so comfortable being there that, um, and they were so nice and friendly. I mean, Julia Louis and everything about it was, um, was just comfortable. And, uh, you know, Larry David was the best. I mean, he, he was there and he was just so calm. Like, he sort of like led the ship. And the episode I did was um, Carol Leifer wrote. And she was unbelievably brilliant as well. So, you know, there was, there was Larry David, Carol Leifer, and then, of course, the cast. And it just, they were just so welcoming, you know, and so, and I, I honestly thought, see, I thought after doing that show, I just thought everything of, I thought all half hour or all shows, you know, would, that would be the barometer of sets. And I never experienced much, anything quite like that, you know. Um, maybe working with Gary David Goldberg was this close, close to it. And then and Larry Sanders' show, you know, where you feel like, you know, the freedom of, to do stuff. But. Yeah, it was it was really just a lovely time, and I I I, I, um, I mean the writing the writing's so good, and it's true. You know, there was you know you go backstage, and there's all these cereal boxes, and there's Jerry like eating cereal, and there's like you yeah, had like fifteen or twenty different types of cereal. So every day, I'd be like, Cocoa Puffs, no, Froot Loops, no, Captain Crunch. It was like it was like he's like a big kid, and uh, Larry David, oh my God, he was he, you know. I don't know if you remember back in the late 90s was that weird cigar craze. Everybody was smoking a cigars all the time. Yeah. So, so I, I, don't know, I was smoking a cigar. Everyone, Larry smoking. So I remember I brought Larry, like, you know, at the end of the show, you bring gifts or I don't know, that's what you do in the theater. You always exchange a gift or something. You don't have to. So anyway, I brought Larry, like the, the we were doing like, these um, night shoots on the New York City Street on the lot there um, at CBS Radford and I brought him a cigar and, uh, and he, uh, the next day I went into work, he said, Whoa, the cigar you brought me, stale, little stale, little stale, <laughs> kind of stale, no, it was okay, it was kind of stale. And I was like, oh, shoot. I was like, oh, no. So I went back to the cigar shop and uh, had to get him another cigar. And he uh, he uh, thanked me that I wasn't stale the next time. But, uh,
1: now, now you mentioned imagine the Larry Sanders show. I know everyone. I know the comics who uh, have how knew Gary and said how special Gary Shanling was. What made that set so uh, good?
0: It, it was almost the same weird experience. I remember, you know, it was the same lot as Seinfeld, with CBS Radford. So you walk onto the stage. I remember, I remember showing up for work and I walked on the stage and there was there was nobody there. I was like, where is everybody? And I'm I'm sort of walking around. I'm like, I know I'm in the right stage because I recognize the set. And there's nobody there. I mean, I'm I'm not that early. I'm like maybe, you know, 30 minutes early, 20 minutes early. And finally, people start showing up. And it was like making a home movie. There was just a camera, some actors, a director, and like the crew, which was basically non existent. So it really felt like you were making a home movie, so you didn't have any nerves at all. There were, like, no nerves. It, it was just this wonderful, you know, place to be. And then I met, you know, Wally Langham and became my friends with him, and uh, I got to work with Rip Torn, and that was wild. And, uh, you know, I just thought this kind of stuff was just going to go on forever, you know, these kind of, like, great experiences. But, you know, I, I, I kind of put myself... You know, out of the game touring with the band so much, but I just, I just thought I could maintain both, you know.
1: But I, I guess I was a little spoiled in that regard. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you were on a bunch of uh, really good um, sitcoms. I mean, you know, you, you know, Darman and Greg and Single Guy and all them, and uh, you also worked on on uh, Sports Night. What was that like working with Sorkin? That was
0: um, the most challenging. Job I ever had as far as, um, dialogue, you know, I, I, am I mean, I like to improvise, but I also, you don't improvise like, you know, Shakespeare or Harold Pinter, you know, because you don't have to. <laughs> so, so when I got to, you know, to that set, I, I, we did the pilot, so I was on the original pilot and, um. I've never worked with like such a group of so many talented actors on one set ever in my life. You know, um, it was just beyond incredible. So not only was the writing really good, but the actors were amazing. And so were the, the, the cameramen were good. I mean, you know, steadicam shots and all sorts of interesting, you know, pre West wing camera techniques and stuff like that. And, um, and then there was Aaron, you know, he was, he was, uh, I guess, you know, he might've been going through some, some rough spots in his life. I didn't know because the writing was so good, but you know, I just, it was, it was a, an incredible experience. I got to work with Robert Guillaume and, and that was amazing. We rehearsed all the time together because I love to rehearse because who, I mean, I, I don't understand actors who can just sort of show up and they've known all, their, all lines on their own. I, I just feel... You know, rehearsing is great, and Robert loved it too, so our scenes were always really tight because we we spent so much time together, like just sitting on the set, running lines and rehearsing. So by the time the cameras rolled up to us, you know, we were so relaxed, and it really showed, and and, uh, I get to work with Bill Macy, and and, um, just real pro, like real theater people, you know, and Felicity, you know, they just come from the theater, so they brought like a different dynamic to television that I that it was so refreshing to see, um, so it it was incredible experience. Um, but I remember like you know having a scene with Robert Guillaume, and uh, Aaron came down and he's like, "Rob, did you uh, did you say uh? I go, "What do you mean?" Because I think you said ah, uh, you added an uh in there. I was like, "Did I?" I go, "Where?" He goes, "Well, you said something and then you went um." Don't do that. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> I had no idea. I didn't mean to add the um or the ah or the ooh, but I just, I just sort of a next, just no, don't no ah, no ah. There's not an um or an ah here, so just I was just like that's kind of like. What it was like working with him, and he was right. You know, he every, everything as you know. I mean, you know this. You've seen his stuff. It almost seems like an octopus, and all the tentacles are the characters of that octopus's brain. So it's almost like the characters on the surface could be interchangeable cause it all, it all comes from one giant brain, <laughs> but that was the challenge, you know, the, the rhythm, the rhythms of the dialogue and the patterns of the dialogue. And I think for Felicity and, and, um, uh, Bill Macy, you know, coming from a mammoth sort of background, they totally jumped on it. And then me, you know, I'm obsessed with Harold Pinter and, and, um, all that stuff. So I, my pacing tends to be more a little bit different, but I realize that Aaron writes like a musician. Like so, everything is like a, a piece of music. And once you like sort of go aboard and give up to that sort of music, everything really works like a
1: little symphony. And it was just it was a really great time. Now you're an actor who's going back and forth between uh, episodic and sitcoms. How do you prepare? Is there is there a different preparation for each one? Because as you said, one is in front of an audience, one isn't. I mean, how do you how would you prepare as an actor for those kind of roles?
0: You know, it's it's weird because I I I guess when I started out, I, you know, I got really fortunate in the beginning after that Seinfeld thing and then a the, the couple other of those sitcoms. I guess casting as an agent for some is oh no he's like the half hour you know sitcom guy he's i guess he's reliable with the audience and he you know he apparently that's his thing he's and, and i didn't really want to do that i mean i mean i actually i would do anything really that that's good quality but i just for me that's not sort of my was my intention i i wanted to um not be in that that world constantly. I, I, I like. I really like the idea of of not having an audience or being, you know, in a in, a, in an environment that's a little bit more relaxing. Um, so I found, you know, the week. You know, if you're doing a half hour that week, that you prepare it's really quiet and easy and then all of a sudden like the last two days it just gets insane you got the network and all these people and like 30 people from corporate and there's some this and the studio and then the audience comes in and then some comedian comes in and like gets the audience all crazy into a frenzy and then you start getting nervous and everyone's freaking nervous and, and then and then everything happens and then there's this crazy energy that's amazing which is really good but sometimes it could lead you down the wrong path and and force you to play to them and not the cameras and there's cameras there and there's an audience and you play to the camera to the audience and it gets a little confusing, you know, and I think for someone like me who is a guest star for Hire, you know, I always have to find out the tone of the show. And I was like, what's the tone? Like, is it is it big? Is it, like, you know, every show has a different tone. So, when I did Becker, I was like, oh, Ted Danson. It's like, his tone. I mean, he's real. I mean, he's just a real guy. He, he doesn't, he's not big, he doesn't telegraph, he's good. So I remember doing scenes with him and, you know, the producers coming out to me and go, Rob, you know, a little, little more energy, a little, little more. I'm like, well, Ted is just talking like a human being. And you want me to like, be like a clown or a, like, why do I have to drive this scene? I'm gonna look like an idiot. And I'm like, I'm just talking to Ted, you know? It's just so funny, and then, of course, I took the note, and I did it, and I noticed that the audience was really laughing more, and then, when I saw the episode on TV, that particular scene, I hated myself in it, because I looked like I was just overdoing it, so I knew, and then, then from that moment, I was like, damn it, I knew, man, I was right, but yet I understand what he was saying, you know? He, you know they were they were a little caught up because there was an audience there. and Ted's just looking at me just like I know, but I this is, this is just like I know what's going on. And that's why I loved working with him because it didn't matter to him if there was an audience there or not. I mean, he understood it. obviously he's not you know he how to do the rhythm and everything, but he just stuck to his um, to his gig and that, and that's what you, I guess what you have to do.
1: But sometimes guest stars don't have the you know, luxury of doing that. Well, you were, you were a guest star a lot in a lot of these shows. And then you had two, it looks like if you go to IMDb, you had two series, you had Battery Park, and then you had uh, Easy to Assemble. What was it like getting on a series finally?
0: You know, the Gary David Goldberg thing was a dream come true. It's like, uh, you know, he didn't make any of the actors test or go to network. He would just say network, these are my actors, and if you don't like it, well, then Screw it, and and if I had, you know, I've must have tested for twenty five shows, and obviously I would just get so nervous. I mean, I'm not a very good. I mean, I, I mean, I'm just not great at auditioning. Some actors are, you know, my book, and I have friends that great actors that are that are frightened from, it. and then luckily sometimes you know they get really successful i don't have to but for me i was never really good at it I, I didn't look forward to it which is weird because that's how you get the job so when you know when i read for Allison jones and gary and i was you know he said i want you to play this part i, I was like Oh, okay and then i I'm, like, I'm thinking okay when's the network test He goes, no 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 you don't have to test and i swear to god i think i fell to the floor and started, like, I was, like, crawling over to kiss his feet, because <laughs> I was just, like, I can't understand, I mean, if I had to test, you know, I know I would just chuck this out in the net, because i just get so nervous, so, so, I was, like, this is, are you doing this with everyone, he's, like, yeah, and I'm, like, oh, my God, so, so, it was incredible, we got there, I get to work with Elizabeth Perkins, and all these, like, incredible people, and Chris Henchy, and writing, and, it was, it was an, a phenomenal show. It was basically like a precursor to Brooklyn Nine-Nine. And, uh, it was amazing. It was, it, it just, um, you know, NBC was going through a lot of stuff, and um, they wanted more family-oriented stuff. But, man, we, we, we were pulling, like, $12 million in uh, against who wants to be a millionaire and or, or something, and, and it wasn't enough, which is insane, you know. So, uh, yeah, yeah it was, it was incredible. Gary was a great guy, you know, and now, Gary David Goldberg, Spin City, and Family Ties, I and mean, he came out here in a van, he lived in a van, you know, when he first came out here. It's amazing. And, and then he ended up, you know, doing what he did, and he told me the story about Michael J. Fox, about when he was doing Family Ties, and he, he wanted Michael J. Fox to play this part, and nobody wanted him, the network, nobody. And he said he had to go to Brandon Tartikoff, and, uh, Go to his office and just, you know, just sit there with a beer and just say, You got to trust me in this, man. This kid is, he's great. And Brent's like, All right, all right, all right. I get it, Karen. I'll do it. I'll do it. And because those days are long gone. When the, when the showrunner can go to the head of the network and say, Dude, just give me a chance. This kid's going to be, and, and that's exactly what happened, you know.
1: Now, it's just,
0: uh, you know, he was, a, he was a great man. I'm
1: sad to see that he passed, you know. I, I gotta tell you a funny story. Um you're in the movie The Christmas Pageant.
0: Oh yeah, with Melissa
1: Gilbert. Yeah, and, and what's funny is that I listen sports radio, I listen to WIP ninety four in Philadelphia John Ritchie's an ex-football player. He's the one host. And this guy, Joe DeCamera is. And he raves about that movie. Like, out of like, nowhere at Christmas time. Like, what'd you watch? He goes, oh my God, I watched the best movie, The Christmas Pageant. So you have a, a very popular Philadelphia sports personality who loved your movie. That
0: is a riot. You know, I mean, Melissa Gilbert, what can you say? I mean, she's she's unbelievable. You know, she's just, you know, I, she's incredible. I've done two films with her um, and she's uh, it was so much fun I swear to god do- I, I sometimes when we doing scenes with her I honestly forgot where I was I just I couldn't tell the difference between action and cut you know we were just we just became really good friends and we're still really good friends um, and uh, it was kind of yeah, it was a blast um, that's another you know people are asking why do you do those all Hallmark movies. Well, I was like, first of all, at first I was kind of wary of it, sort of like, you know, out to pasture. But <laughs> when I did my first one, I had so much fun. I, I you know, I was almost like that same feeling I had when I was doing, um, you know, but like Mary Sanders, like you got to the set and it felt like a home movie, you know? Nobody's telling you what to do. There's no suits. There's no people don't do that. You know, you're fired. Uh, you know, more energy. You know, it was it was really nice it was just like a really really comfortable atmosphere and then I said to myself okay I'm gonna do this film and I'm gonna try to pretend that I'm in the Martin Scorsese movie I mean you have to take that seriously you have to pretend it's like the you know it's it's the greatest thing and if you if you approach things like that I think the quality you know it's just gonna do be a better film you know and so I didn't take it as like oh some some you know silly job that i you know i, I couldn't you know i got I, I took it you know like you know this is a big deal and and i think it 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 works out that way it shows in the work like and melissa was the same way we're like let's try to make this like really good like we can't really write the script you know we didn't write the script but how how can we like really do something to this film and then of course you see the movie and everything we're doing i'm really happy with but they the music oh my god they, it's just so cheesy they kind of like <laughs> I wasn't really I wasn't really happy with the music it kind of got in the way you know so oh well you know I guess that's that's the way it goes that's the only thing why do they do that with the music sometimes
1: you know I don't know You know, it's funny my wife's addicted to those Hallmark movies and it, it's so funny that I they're always like the Hallmark ones. at Christmas time are almost always the same story but she loves him. And you're right, I guess because music, it just, I think it's like a, it's like a hip uncoolness sometimes when it comes to the music. Like it, it fits into the whole, you know, the whole formula.
0: Isn't, it, isn't music in, in film like interesting though? Because just imagine like in real life, you're walking around. And all of a sudden, you know, you're you know, you're, you're living your life. You're going to the store, and then there's like a soundtrack to everything you do. It's so weird, well, it's like you walk through the door to see your wife, and the music's playing. You know, it's to me that's it's like hilarious that that's that's part of like the industry. But then when it's done right, oh my god, it blows your mind. Like an Ennio Morricone or or something like that. When you, you know, um, it just it, it becomes like the whole film. Oh so yeah, it, when when it's done correctly. Well, you know... yeah. Reznor, I
1: mean... Look at Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Everyone remembers the car scene, you know, moving in stereo. The beginning is We've Got the Beat, and you just remember all the songs that play such a key part.
0: Right, those needle drop songs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But I was... Yeah, I agree. I mean, same with Scorsese, like all those songs and Goodfellas, like just everything... Oh, uh, yeah, no, it, it's, I, I mean, that's, that's what I spend most of my days doing. Just, I, You know, I play a lot of piano and do a lot of recording and I just, it's just, I just love to play piano. It's like my favorite thing to do. So, um,
1: so, so what, what made you, what made you pretty much stop acting?
0: Um, I just, you know, I, I did this web series with Ileana Douglas for three years and and my employer was IKEA. We got we literally got paid from IKEA, and this is around 2008 or nine or ten. And uh, I, it was so much fun because we were doing the music. I was I was scoring it, doing the music, and acting it. I was a, um, like her, her love interest, and it was an incredible. Webster suit; she was way ahead of her time. I mean, I mean, she had like everyone on the show, like Jane Lynch, Jeff Goldberg, all these incredible people, you know, Justine Bateman coming in and out of the show, and um, she, you know, it was just an incredible uh, experience. And then out of that, we sort of spawned this thing called Sparhusen, which is this band from Sweden, that out of the blue, my friend Todd Spar, when we were writing, you know, the music for the show, we, we started becoming these Swedish characters. And then Liliana was like, I want to get in. <laughs> so she came over and then we ended up spinning off and, and doing some stuff with that in, into the easy to assemble. And it was just, um, you know, an incredible uh, round of stuff. And during that period, to answer your question, <laughs> my agent was like, what is going on with you? It's like, what What? what are you doing? Three, like three years went by and, and, I, and I was consumed by this thing. And I kind of lost my agent from that. They, they were just like, you're not, you know, we you're not available. And they got they kind of got set up with me at the time. And and I just kept going with that. And then after that all ended, you know, I just um, I took a break. And then, you know, a year went by, then another year went by. And then I just started doing more, more music and more music and getting more involved in that. And then it just, it just sort of flew by and uh, I never really got back. In. I never really got back in or searched out to grab another agent. You
1: know. Well, so many people have said the business has really changed too. It's not, it's not an actor's uh, uh, profession anymore. It's all the producer's profession and the money has gone down. A lot of people just, I know are very frustrated.
0: You know, I, I, I remember when, you know, I mean, I made such a. I'm so lucky. I don't even know how I did. I did. i you know, the things that I got to do. Uh, but I remember when they started this one day guest star thing. Where you know, instead of being paid for the weeks of work, they, they you just come in for the one day and shoot all your scenes in one day. And you know, so instead of making you know the normal whatever six or seven grand for a one hour or or whatever it was or three or four whatever for the half, they wanted. The twelve hundred bucks you come in for one day to you all your scenes—that's it. And I was like, okay, that's the end. That's the end of the guest star for guest star for hire. That's the—that's—that's—that's that's, that's it. That's the end. I mean, there's no—I—I mean, I, I could in the old days—not the old days, but in the, certainly in the nineties and the early two thousands. I mean, if I did six gigs a year, I mean, that's—I that's, could—I could literally live off live off of that with the music stuff and then my, um, you know, my. Investing stuff that I like to do, um, which I went you know studied in school. So between those three things, I was totally fine. So once they took that away, I was like, okay. Now the only way to really kick butt in the acting world is you have to get on a show. That's like you have to, or you have to be you know you have to be the guy, or you got to be you know you you can't really sort of piddle in and out. So that that was tough. You know that that was really tough. So. And uh, now, you know, as you know, you know, most film, the film industry is just is is different. So everyone's on TV. So instead of just competing with other my friends and other actors, now you're like, you know, you're competing with you know A-list movie stars for television. So that 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 was that I'm not you know I'm not going to compete with them.
1: <laughs> well, so you're out of that. Now, I want to talk to you more about your music. When Dog Star started, did did you guys were you getting together just to jam or did you actually think that you would start touring I mean, what was your goals when you, when you met, first hooked up with Keanu and you guys started just jamming What did you have any set goals of what would happen you know when we first started I was still on the, the soap and so we were just it was just an
0: outlet to play he had a garage up at Beachwood Canyon and we had a house and he had a garage and, and he had he like his bass gear up there and, and my buddy Tony Alda and I we'd go up there and we'd play and then Um, And I just, you know, we just, I had some friends from New York come out and we just, you know, there was always creative people hanging out at his house, you know. I used to play quite a bit with River Phoenix. He'd be up there, hang out, and and it was just a creative place to go and, you know, um, for a lot of other artists to go and play music. And, you know, some of the musicians were great, some of us were just sort of starting out with different instruments and it was just it was like a test kitchen for music and um, I think when we started we didn't really know what we were going to do and then at one point you know after I say maybe six months of just playing a lot we were like we've got to play out should we play <laughs> so we ended up you know going down the street and booking a show at this place called Raji's and we played with weezer. <laughs> I think Weezer opened up for us. I think they, I swear to God. And I remember watching them. I was like, oh my God, these guys are amazing. So, and they were great. They stuck around to see our show and we were we were horrible. So the first, the first you know, the first year was, it was tough because when I met Keanu, you know, he wasn't like this enormous, huge international film star, but he had done Bill and Ted and he was certainly, you know, on the rise to becoming, you know, who he ended up becoming but so we really couldn't fail in public like normal bands do because there was always this scrutiny and press around judging and rightfully so you know we should be judged but man we couldn't we couldn't you know get a break so and the only way to get better and to learn as for any musician is to play out in front of people so um and it was rough in the beginning. And then we finally figured, you know, we, we got better and we changed personnel a bit. And then, you know, but it took, it took a while to, um, to, to get out of that. So then we, yeah, then we just started um, playing and trying to develop a sound. And once we got our new guitar player and singer, this guy, Brett Domros, we really started to, to take off. And, um, and we would do these little uh, tours around America, you know and uh, little club tours mostly, and then it just got, you know, we started building a fan base, and we went to Europe, and played some festivals, and they seemed to really like us over there, you know, more certainly more so than here, and as well as Japan, and and then, and it's like so weird pockets of America, like for some reason we were really, really, successful in chicago you know and and then the south but we go to boston and nobody would show up so we couldn't we couldn't figure it out but once once we started rolling along and and the songs got better you know it it worked out well and then once we recorded with ed Stasium and put out some music um it really was helpful you know so yeah it sort of it was an organic sort of trip but we we um it was, it was another one of those double-edged swords too, because as Keanu Stark kept rising and rising, it, you know, it sort of put like a lot of pressure on the band. So I, he rose a lot faster than we did. So it was, um, it was tough to, um, you know, to, to deal with that, but he's a great guy. He's a great. He's a really, really good bass player too.
1: Now, now who wrote most of the music?
0: In that particular band, um, you know, Brett would write all the lyrics, and then you know, obviously Keanu and Brett would write the majority of the music, and me being the drummer, I was more like an editor, and a, you know, kind of like, a, like the you know the guy like the French you know the French culinary police. I'd be like, no, that's not good, or that sounds like the Kings, or that's. I was always like the guy that like, you know, trying to sort of shape the sound. Like, I think all three of us wanted to be in different bands, you know? I mean, sound, like, dream like Like, was more of, like, punk. Like, he was, like, hard punk. He wanted that. And I'm more like Pixies. And then Brett was more like Cheap Trick. <laughs> so it was like, we had these three very different ideas of what, you know, kind of a band we wanted to be in. And um, so we put it all together. And, you know, I guess it, 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 it sounded Pretty good. I think actually, it sounds better now than it did then. You know, because we're sort of telling stories in our music, and I think during those early years, I think the the you know it was mostly like grunge and pop and power pop, and I think you know our our music was a little bit more. Um, it seems like the music more today. You know, not not I'm talking about hip hop and rap and all that cool stuff. I'm just but in, in that in that genre. You know, it seems like it fits better now why we're back together rehearsing (laughs) because we like we're like our music sounds better now than it did back then so we're we're kind of back and we've been rehearsing in in the studio here at my house and for a good oh my god for almost two years now but Keanu's been so busy so but our plan is to get back out and maybe play some clubs and and get back out there
1: now you said you played some festivals um who were some of the bands that you got to meet and play with? Because you grew up as a big music fan. Did you get to meet any of those those people you looked up to when you were young?
0: You know, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, we, we toured, well, uh, it's, a, it's a tough question. There was one festival where I, in San Francisco that I, I just, I couldn't believe that somehow we opened up for. It was, it was, us, Dogstar, silly, and Travis, this band from England, who I loved, and they were current at the time. And then the Go-Go's, which <laughs> I just think are the greatest. And then Beck, who I think is the most underrated American musician maybe ever to walk the planet. So so that, to me, that was like sort of my... Um, that was a, a wonderful night. And, and then we toured with Bon Jovi around Australia and New Zealand, and we played the forum with them. And uh, that's not really my personal taste of, of music that I, I grew up listening to, but it was, it was fun to play for that crowd. And, um, and then my all-time favorite, and this, is, this, this thing just this blew me away. We, I remember I was playing hockey in Burbank and back before cell phones. So I got this you know, message, and I got on the pay phone, and it's our, our manager at the time. She's like, um, Halloween, you're going to be um, – oh, oh, my God, I can't, I can't talk. I, I don't even know what to say, but David Bowie um, wants you to open up for him. I'm like, David who? Bowie. I go, David Bowie? No, David Bowie. David Bowie. I'm like, David Bowie, right? Bowie? No, David Bowie. I was like, okay, it's David Bowie, right? She said, yes, it's David Bowie. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, that doesn't make any sense, but I guess. I mean, I couldn't figure that out at all. And he wanted he 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 heard some of our music and he wanted a, like a local band to open up for him at the Palladium on Halloween night. And he was touring with Trent Reznor's Nine Inch Nails, which. Is one of the greatest live shows you'll ever see, and I guess they were busy on Halloween, being all goth and stuff, or doing what maybe they had a night off. So, so we came in and played, and it was it was like my dream come true because David Bowie is my idol. I mean, he's that. There's nothing better like John, Paul, George, Ringo, David Bowie. So, so we got to meet him, and he was so nice during our sound check. You know, we were struggling along, trying to play this like Carpenter song. I don't know what we we're doing. Comfortably numb. We we actually played "Comfortably Numb," um, by Pink Floyd, and and David Bowie. He's off to the side of the stage. He's looking at. He's smoking a cigarette, and he goes and he goes he goes. Um, Rob, um, would you like me to hold the doors for you a bit longer? <laughs> 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 like, yeah, like, like, like you. He's like he were struggling to learn, you know, get this part right, and he's like laughing at us. I'm like, no, 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 we're fine, we're on schedule. And he was such a gentleman, and uh, it was honestly, I'll, I'll never forget that night until as long as It's like things like that, like we didn't make any money or, you know, we didn't, it was nothing, like nothing, it was just a thing. But that's what I was talking about earlier, like the things that you choose and And maybe I missed three auditions that day, or I don't know. I could have been on this or that. And but that to me is just you know David Bowie looking over and saying, "Well, you know, should I hold the tools?" That that to me, I'll I'll remember more than any job I've ever done. You know, it's just these little moments in life that just sort of um, sweep you away. So, so so that happened, and I still can't believe that happened. But uh, that that was crazy.
1: So now, what kind of music (laughs) are you working on now?
0: You know, it's funny, like, I, I I love Philip Glass, and I love that neoclassical um, piano. I, I love, like, the soundtrack to The Hours, and I love just, like, that sort of, um, that kind of repetitive arpeggiated piano, that, and, I, and I love that. So I, I've sort of, kind of, been doing a lot of, like, sort of classical, neoclassical, you know, um, piano playing. Um, it sounds all you know, fancy and like, I know what I'm doing, but it's, uh, I, you know, it's very ambient. I, I, I it's so funny cause I a drummer and you know, I love these particular bands like the Kinks and the Pixies and the Stones, but as a piano player, <laughs> it's like, I don't, um, I'm more obsessed with the, you know, the, the Philip Glass and, you know, the Manuel Axe, all this great pianists. but, and I love, you know, Brian Eno and Harold Budd and Daniel Lenoir and all that ambient music from the 80s, and um, so that's the kind of stuff I'm doing now, and uh, I've been recording, so it's, um, yeah, my wife is a, she's a cellist, and and a pianist too, but she's like the real deal, she reads music, and you know, so she, she watches me play, and giggles.
1: Those cellists, I'll tell you something about the cellists. I got, I got married in September, and my wife wanted a cello player. Well, I had no idea how to get a cello player, so I, I posted something in my the hometown I grew up in. It's Cherry Hill. I posted it on a Facebook page. I said, does anybody know a cello player? We got this girl. She was like a freshman in college, and she was so good. And we sat there, and I was, it was like a... 15-minute gig, I was going to pay her 50 bucks, but when I felt bad, so I gave her 100 bucks, it made her day, but it was amazing how much the cello added to the ceremony, because as people were walking in, is playing cello, and it, and cello's a really cool instrument. I, it's
0: one of my, you know, the bass and the cello, and the piano, it's one of my favorites, because it's so deep, you know? I mean, Yo-Yo Ma is, 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 the, is the greatest celloist, I think, of of all time, and and if you ever get a chance to see him comes around, if you, I mean, it's worth every penny. Um, it's just I, I, last time I saw Yo-Yo Ma play was at the Hollywood Bowl, and I surprised my wife because she's that she, she loves him as well. And there were people weeping like behind us, after, like like people like crying. It's weird. Like he's so good, you know. And I thought, oh no, what, like, you know, an hour hour and a half of a guy playing challenging going to be boring, but. It was over so fast, I couldn't believe it. It was, it was incredible, but you're right. The instrument's like very visceral and deep, and it just gets to your soul. And it You know, not, not like a violin, you know. I mean, I love Isak Perlman, and I love violin as well, but there's something about a cello that just, it's more cinematic and moody maybe, you know?
1: Now, do you miss acting at all?
0: I do. I do i'd be a liar if i said that i didn't i miss and i feel like i'm better at it than i've ever was as as i was leaving but you know i'm also you know I'm fit, I, it's just one of those things you know you know it's, you know when you're in your 20s and 30s and early 40s you know it's easy you know it's <laughs> and you're male it's you know you take things for granted you know so but i really do miss it um Maybe there's a way I can get back out there. If, um, get back out if there. It. Yeah, but I yeah. We'll see, we'll yeah. see. But that's the good thing about music is, you know, it's hard to sort of act and you know, by yourself. The good right. thing about music is you can I can sit down and play the piano or cooking I can. You know, there's there's certain things. Uh, so I keep myself really busy artistically. So
1: it's. Yeah, just getting by in this crazy world. Well, that's what we want to hear. You're getting by, and you're still practicing your art. I want to thank you for coming on, Rob. Uh, Do you? Are you on Twitter?
0: No, I am not on Twitter.
1: Okay. Are you on Instagram? um,
0: I'm not on. Yeah, I'm I'm not with all the cool. You know, I just. Yeah, no, I I don't. uh, I don't
1: tweet. All right. Well, you should start a Twitter account so people go check out Rob's IMDb and watch some of his past performances. Go get the Dogstar albums
0: because he's on them, and uh, keep. Right, so we we you know, we have some iTunes. We're on iTunes. The Dogstar is the best, and uh, Sparhusen Record, and my old band Becky. We're all yeah, yeah. We're on iTunes. Yes, I can hear that, and hopefully we'll get the Dogstar back going again, and maybe we'll maybe you know, we get out there touring again. If, if we'll, we'll get we'll get all those guys. And maybe they can t- get Keanu to talk to you.
1: Exactly. Well, people, check out Rob Malhouse. Check out my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 780 episodes. Uh, email me, cooper, coopertalk.net. Uh, Twitter, at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time. Thanks, Rob.